and good afternoon. It is now 4.16, and you're listening to Freeform with your host, Edgar, right here on WCBN. And we were rocking it blues style for the last few songs, and here's what they were. Ain't Nobody by Lonnie Mac wrapped it up, and then Outside Looking In by Kenny Neal. Leaving Your Town by Charlie Musselwhite. Wibble Wim She When She Walk by Jim by John Mooney. And then River Hip Mama, also by Charlie Musselwhite. I Ain't Drunk by Robert Collins. And School Days by Floyd Jones opened up the set. Well, this last little mini set I have is called Get Happy. And you'll understand why once you hear it. Coming up next is a song by a person called Ziggy Rankings called Can't Faze Me. So please stay tuned and get a little happy.
some of you still frowning out there I believe this one might do the trick
And, well, you're listening to the conclusion of Freeform with Edgard right here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And the last set was titled Get Happy and With Good Reason. The last song was called Juve Morning by Flavor, then Disc Agogo by Sid Dale, and then that May set opened up with the song Cat Phase Me by Ziggy Ranking. And, well... Do stay tuned right here because some more fun programming is coming up, coming up next and throughout the rest of the evening. I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's program as much as I have enjoyed compiling and get and broadcasting it for you today. Everyone have a good afternoon and be safe. Coming up next is a Living Writer Show.
trägt er im Hütig und Mekiter hat ein Messer, doch das Messer sieht man nicht an dem schönen blauen Sonntag liegt ein toter Mann am Strand. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have Lawrence Weschler here joining us from El Paso in Texas. Uh, Lawrence, welcome. Great to be with you. <laughs> um, would you like to, before, I'm going to uh, read a short bio um, from your book, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder, uh, Prong Dance, Horned Humans, Mice on Toast, and Other Marvels of Jurassic Technology, um, <laughs> which will be in town next week coming to Ann, Ar- Ann Arbor on Tuesday at the Power Center in the afternoon at about 4.30 to, to talk about the book with students and the public. Um, but before we go into all that... Um, that music was something else. Uh, would you tell us a yeah, little bit uh, about that? that? Is, of course, <laughs> the Back the Knife from from the Three Penny Opera, Kurt Weill's music. And the pertinence immediately here is that if you happen to be in Culver City on the west side of Los Angeles um, and you're on Venice Boulevard and you're, you're walking and you pass the pip printing and you pass the rug, the carpet store, and then there's a, um, a, a real estate office that's kind of abandoned, and then there's the Museum of Jurassic Technology, and then there's a Thai restaurant, and then there's a In-N-Out Burger, and you say, wait a second, the Museum of Jurassic Technology? Uh, what could that possibly be? And what you may find is that outside the museum is a sh- short little man who is playing an accordion, and more often than not, he's playing... Uh, Mac the Knife, uh, or, or the Kurt Vile music, or alternatively, he'll be playing Handel, or he'll be playing uh, Mozart on his accordion, right by the bus stop, and bidding you to enter the Museum of Jurassic Technology. And if you do, it is the beginning of one of the great adventures of, of your life, <laughs> and, and was the subject for this book I wrote. Uh, Coming on 15 years ago. How did you How did you find David Wilson? Were you literally walking I, down I, that street? I, I, I come from L.A., although I've I've been based in New York for the last 30 years. I was at the New Yorker for 20 years, and I, so I always go back to L.A. It's my real It's my heart's true home. And and uh, and people would start saying to me, "Have you been to see the Museum of Jurassic Technology?" And I couldn't imagine what that could possibly even be. Uh, this is parenthetically before Jurassic Park. Uh, the film was made. It had nothing to do with that, and, and you had no idea really what they were talking about. And then one day I was taking driving exactly that thing I just described, and I saw that there was this thing, the Museum of Dress Technology, and so I pulled over and I knocked on the door, and nobody was there, and forgot about it. And uh, the next time I was in LA, I was driving by, I stopped again, nobody was there. Uh, I think probably the third time I knocked on the door, and, and this little man let me enter. I say little, he's maybe five foot six, five foot seven, something. And uh, he he sports a Amish beard and co- close-cropped hair, and he's extremely gentle and kind, and uh, he invites you to enter, and, and he, there's a little sign that says, suggest donation, $2, free for, for members of the community. And he points out that if you're waiting at the bus bench, that's part of the community, so you don't have to pay. And <laughs> so generous. Just, and you walk in, and... Uh, it's dark. It's kind of like one of those old Victorian uh, 
uh, you know, Natural History Museums. It has all these kinds of things, uh, vitrines, and it has, uh, 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 you know, oak tables and, and, and glass vitrines and, and, and velvet plush and so forth. And then it, it starts having these exhibits. It has little telephones so you can listen to the, the acoustic guide. In effect, is a little telephone receiver. And it has, the acoustic guide has the, the voice of the institutional authority. It's a very sober voice that you've heard on every acoustic guide. And you're looking at these displays, and they're just they're, they seem at first to be completely ordinary, but the, every single one of them begins to have a kind of strange sense of slippage, and you don't quite know what the hell is going on. Uh, and it just gets more and more mysterious from there. You actually, you, you mentioned, um, Lawrence, may I call you Ren? Sure, may of course, that's what everybody um, does. Um, <laughs> um, it solves the Larry problem. Uh, well, I like that. I like that sh- shortening um, to Ren. There must be a story behind that. Uh, so what I answered to as a kid. Well, you mentioned earlier that it was, it's about 15 years ago when you, uh-huh. when you made this um when you wrote this book, um, that it sounds like when you're describing it that you're you're still absolutely captivated by Any, anybody him. who's been there is absolutely captivated. It is a it's a completely strange, remarkable thing. And uh, I mean, just to get, let, let me give you an example of a display. In fact, that's the one I do, I start the uh, the book with, which is there's this glass vitrine and it has this kind of uh, uh, diorama like. Uh, jungle scene and these vines and these, you know, rubber plants and there's a little ant on it and there's this little kind of peg coming out of its forehead and and you pick up the acoustic guide and the acoustic guide with this great institutional voice says that the Cameroonian stink ant, what you're looking at is a Cameroonian stink ant, one of the few ants whose scream is audible to the human ear. <laughs> so you look at that, and, and it says, and, and that these are very industrious tribes of ants, and that they and they uh, uh, forage the rainforest floor. Uh, but every once in a while, one of these ants will accidentally inhale a spore of a fungus of the genus Tomentella. And if you happen, this is the, the guy talking. If you happen to be at ant's eye level at that moment, <laughs> the ant will have a look of stupefaction and bewilderment, as well it might, because the spore has lodged in its brain, and it begins to foment bizarre behavioral changes. And for the first time, it stops being industrious and, and a member of the, a good citizen of the community, and instead, it begins to climb the tendrils of the nearby vines, for the first time leaving the rainforest floor, reaching a certain height, at which point it impales its mandibles on the vine, and waits to die, because indeed the spore is eating up everything inside of it. And after it has been eaten all the soft tissue, two weeks later, an inch and a half long prong will erupt from out of its forehead, filled with spores, which rain down onto the rainforest floor, waiting for other unsuspecting ants to inhale them. It sounds rather horrific as you're describing it, uh, Ren, but also funny. Well, I mean, there's, it's funny. It's horrific. It's kind of, is this, is this, you know, is this true? I mean, you, you go from wondering at the marvels and dangers to wondering whether this is at all true. Well, especially that if you happen to be at eye level, because you're then picturing, picturing some adventurer so or scientist. And, right. and if, for example, you go to David Wilson, as I did in those days, and I said, you know, 
what what did you what what is this and, and where did you hear about this he says yeah i i heard about it on some nature documentary he said and by the way in the meantime partly because of the success of this book that that well, well let me, i'll hold that off for a second in case you say it. he says to you uh i heard about it on uh on some nature documentary he said do you have any where is it? he says no I, i've lost the citation you know and he says, but it always meant a lot to me because it reminds – I kind of identify with that ad, says David Wilson. And indeed, he is somebody who, as you begin to find out more about him, was once a good, industrious citizen of the world. In fact, he used to make uh, miniatures for Hollywood and, and uh, was uh, you know, doing good work, and, and he kind of inhaled a spore. And he, uh, and he instead veered off and founded this museum on a shoestring budget. Uh, it has no business whatsoever surviving, uh, and yet his mission is to kind of rain down spores onto other people and to blow other people's minds, and, and uh, he does that rather successfully. Yeah, sort of ratchet open your expectations somehow. And it's so he when he said that, did you something click in you, Ren, where you said, "I've got the metaphor that I'm going to hang the first section of this book on." That it was that so much. I mean, there were there are any number of things you could take as the metaphor for the whole place. In fact, the whole thing is incredible. At the end of the day, by the way, it is a it is a uh, when when the book came out, somebody referred to it as a book of magic realist nonfiction, and this is kind of a magic realist museum. It is a uh, it at first. I mean, just to give you some ideas of the other kinds of things you find in there, there's the there's the uh, Megaloponera photons, which is of course the the uh, the bat who who who's uh, when you listen to that thing, you listen to the acoustic guide. It turns out the bat has its nose is becoming so concentrated that instead of setting out uh, sonar in the ultraviolet or the intense. Uh, infrasonic range, it goes all the way to the X-range, which explains why these bats can fly through walls. And one of them, uh, there was an incredible effort to capture them, and indeed there was, in the middle of the rainforest, uh, there is a huge lead wall where they finally were able to capture one, and the lead wall is there. You can look at the lead wall and know that there's, in fact, a bat inside that wall because it has a special kind of sonar. And it, but you don't see the opening that the bat made when it entered no, the no, lead no. wall. <laughs> okay, uh, so you, you, you very much while well, the the if you push a button, a luminousness, and you can kind of see the bat inside there. But, but really, and 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 or, or there, I mean, there there are just countless. There is, for example, there's this little tiny uh, pit, basically, that is held in in, in a kind of like an armature, surrounded by glass, and it's explained that this is a fruit stone carving. And then if you look at it closely, uh, you can see uh, that the master has carved incredibly tiny versions of a, a dog, a boar, a monkey, a cloud, a, I mean, like 25 different things. And you look at this thing, and <laughs> you can't really see it, but that's what it says. Because and you, and you you're looking at a fruit pit, like a peach pit or yeah. something. Okay. <laughs> but – uh, so there's that description, and then there's a there's a wall of antlers, uh, you know, like any natural history museum, with you know the, the antelope antler, the moose antler, and so forth. And then there's one horde that sticks out, which is a human horde. It's the horde of Mary Davis of Sawhall from Chestershire from the 13th century, and uh, <laughs> and you're kind of going, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> but, but, so- so that's what, what happened what to you. What happens is, as this builds up is that 
you at a certain point begin to think that the whole thing is a lark, that it's all made up. By the way, there's all kinds of other things. For example, there's there's a now there's a there's been all kinds of stuff since I I wrote it. But he has a beautiful beautiful uh, exhibit called uh, Garden of Eden on Wheels, um, selected collections from the trailer parks of Los Angeles County. Wow. And uh, and he Lovely. talks about these collectors. You know, he has a little display of a of doilies, for example, that were that were fashioned by uh, Susan Jones, and, and it says Susan Jones studied art at the Mulholland Junior High School before uh, completing her degree at the Birmingham High School. And uh, you know, and, and and he and and so there's this combination of wild satire and profound reverence going on side by side. Um, and the interesting thing about virtually everything there as it begins to happen is that far from necessarily being completely outlandish and off the wall, more often than not, it's completely true. That thing about the Cameroonian stinkhead, that's all true. That's totally true. Ren, uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll <laughs> be back, and we'll talk more about what's true. <laughs> Thanks. We're going to we're going to take a short bra- break, hear some music and we'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to have Lawrence Weschler uh, joining us. Uh, he's talking with us from El Paso, Texas. Um, before we go any further back into the conversation, I'll just take this moment to read um, Lawrence Weschler's short bio from Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder uh, with a few a few updates. <laughs> Lawrence Weschler has been a staff writer for The New Yorker since the early 1980s and is a two-time winner of the George Polk Award for Cultural Reporting in 1989 and Magazine Reporting in 1992. Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder, which was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, constitutes the latest installment in Weschler's ongoing Passions and Wonders series, earlier volumes of which include... Seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees, and Shapinsky's Karma, Boggs Bills, and other true life tales. His other books include David Hockney's Camera Works, The Passion of Poland, and A Miracle, A Universe. 
Beginning in 1999, his Convergence's essays appeared regularly in McSweeney's Quarterly. A collection of these essays, Everything That Rises, a book of Convergence's, was published in 2006 and received the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. And... On top of all of this, he is the director of the Institute of the Humanities at New York University and the artistic director of the Chicago Humanities Festival. He lives in Westchester County, New York, with his wife and daughter. So, Ren, back to letting you have a word in edgewise here. <laughs> so, hey, that thing you were listening to in the break there yes. uh, is, is the geographical fugue, and, and it's, it's, we're setting up kind of a uh, time parameter here because you started with, with uh, Kurt Viles' uh, Back the Knife. Uh, the geographical fugue comes from the same era in Weimar, Germany, and was written by my grandfather, who was the composer Ernst Toch. T-O-C-H, uh, who was a big deal in, in Weimar, Germany. There used to be a joke that the emigres in Los Angeles would tell about how two dachshunds would meet on the Palisade in L.A. and looking out at the Pacific, one of the dachshunds would say to the other one, you know, it's true that here I'm a dachshund in the old country. I was a St. Bernard. <laughs> and, and my grandfather indeed was a St. Bernard. He was one of the most performed composers of the time in, in Weimar, Germany. And in fact, I guess you could say the inventor of rap music. He invented the form in 1928 in Germany of the spoken chorus, in which you would just have words played against each other without any musical uh, intonation. Um, and that piece, the geographical fugue, was was the first time that was done, uh, and was subsequently imitated all over the place, and eventually has all kinds of influence. Uh, he eventually had to flee Hitler and came to Los Angeles. Uh, uh, which is why I come from Los Angeles as well. But but uh, he worked in Hollywood, and 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 one day there was a knock on the door in 1934, and this kid was saying, "Are you the pro professor, talk the author of the Geographical Fugue?" And my grandfather said, "Yes, but it was just a joke." And he said, "No, no, sir, it's extremely important." And my grandfather said, "No, no, it was just a joke." And he said, "No, no, it's very important. Would you allow for me to see to its publication here in America?" And my grandfather didn't care and said, "Okay." And and that was John Cage. Los Angeles really? And, when he was in high school? Later, when when Kate, John Cage was in high school? He was just out of high school at that point. And, oh, and years later, I had occasion to profile another member of that community, Nicholas Slodinsky. Uh And I had to interview John Cage uh, during that interview. And, and he said to me, your grandfather, he was under such great stuff. And then he went and blew it all on string quartets. <laughs> So there you have it. <laughs> Everybody's idea of beauty is, is yeah. something different, isn't it? Especially when David's David Wilson's idea too. Oh, what a great story, though. It's so so you so you come from a family of great stories. It sounds like well, You're, yeah, that's I mean, just natural to you. When I first showed up at the New Yorker, when they when I was about to be hired uh, in nineteen eighty, William Shaw, the uh, great esteemed editor had me in and said, we're going to hire you, but there's nothing confusing because it says you come from Los Angeles, but I mean, where were you born? And I said, well, actually, Van Nuys, California, it's Africa Valley. And he says, but where'd you go to school? And I said, you know, Van Nuys, California. He said, where'd you go to college? I said, Santa Cruz. And, and he just couldn't figure it out, but he was a very good reporter and he, and he would... Are you saying he had a... Me, and finally, it was able to establish that all of my grandparents were Viennese Jews, which was a category he could understand, so that was okay. Because <laughs> <was all> <laughs> he couldn't quite he could believe... Not, he could not deal with the possibility that there was intelligent life in Los Angeles. <laughs> right, the California boy was going to make good in New York, right? Well, L.A. gets a bad rap. Yeah. LA, I... LA is a hot spot of intellectual life. <laughs> 
<laughs> a, a, a hot spot for for so many things. Um, yeah, because you don't hear. Um, I, I wrote it down earlier because you don't usually hear people say about L.A. My heart's true home. So yeah, I thought I thought that was it was quite quite good, quite good. So so um. Going back to for a moment to Mr. Wilson's oh, yes. cabinet we, we left, of wonder. We left it all up there, there. But, <laughs> but I was telling you that that stink cant I told you about is entirely true, um, and in fact, it was taken up in in that Planet Earth series a while back. They they included they they had footage of the stink ants, and so when I originally wrote the book, it was compl- nobody would have believed it. But now everybody's seen that sh- series, so now they believe it. But uh, but the the thing about the museum is that there's a certainly a kernel of truth about every, virtually everything in the museum. Some of the stuff is completely true. In fact, the most outlandish stuff is completely true. And then there's stuff that doesn't... You, you, the, like even the horn. Do you mean like the woman's horn? Oh, yeah, that's true. People that used to get horns all the time. <laughs> this, I mean, that, was, that used to be very common. Um, it was it's basically a kind of a cellular growth, like that's the equivalent of fingernail cells, keratinized uh, cells, and they're the kinds of things that that when you have better hygiene, you just kind of knock them off as they're starting to grow and so forth. But in those days, not only did they grow out, but that that they were considered marvels. And and uh, and so in this particular case, the Mary Davis of Sawhall, that's a documented case. And and, and there's I mean, the a photo horn that's there on the wall. Yes, may or may not be her horn, but but that's true. And by the way, that remember that fruit pit I was describing to you? Yes. The, the, there is, although that particular thing is, um, uh, although that particular thing is is um, is just a pit, it is exactly the same dimensions of an actual microscopically detailed uh, 16th century fruitstone carving, which used to happen all the time, actually 17th century, with exactly that legend to it. And, and you can, and in the book, I have a photograph of the actual one. So, what's which is about which is a tiny photograph. People, though. <laughs> uh, at one level, it's kind of like a postmodern send-up of museums. You know, like uh, doubt authority, the whole kind of why do why do we ever believe wall captions at all? Why do you believe that voice of institutional authority? And at one level, it's it's just this postmodern hoot. Uh, uh, although David Wilson himself never breaks irony, he will never acknowledge that there is a kind of hoot quality to what's going on. And why do you he's, think he's that is? He's very serious. He's very sober. Because at the end of the day, rather than being postmodern, it's really pre-modern. And that's why the book, for me, the interest of, of the place and also the book, that all museums today come out of something that happened uh, in the 17th century, which was described as the Age of Wonder. And it was a moment when there, when every aristocrat would have a wonder cabinet in which he would have all together, this is before things get separated out into museums of natural history, museums of art, museums of technology, it would all be together. And you would have, for example, a unicorn horn, a sea unicorn horn was a very common thing you'd see, which was in fact a narwhal tusk. But mm. uh, but then you would have a painting by door. You would have a pelt of beaver. You would have uh, a we all kinds. There'd be all kinds. Of, there'd be uh, amazing things. Fruitstone carvings, for example. There would be the microscope with which the fruitstone carving had been done. This was the hinge moment coming out of the Middle Ages and the late Renaissance, and we're about to enter. You know, the 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 within a few generations will be all the cusp of the age of science and the Industrial Revolution, but it all goes through this period of wonder 
uh, and uh, it's the time when alchemy is gradually becoming chemistry, when astrology is becoming astronomy. And, and there's just this delirium of marvel in the world. Uh, and out of that will become, will come what eventually will be museums as we know them today. But there was a time when it was all together. And basically, if you, wonder, if you ask yourself, why did it happen then in the 16th, 17th century? The answer is because of the discovery of America. The, the, uh, when, when things started coming back to, to Europe from America, or for that matter from China and Africa and so forth, it was just blowing Europe's mind. I mean, purple parrot feathers, you know, or, or uh, narwhal tusks, or moose antlers. I mean, there were all these things that were arriving. And if those could be true, why couldn't everything else be true? Why couldn't unicorns be true? Why couldn't, you know, any number of things be true? So there was this great debauch of credulity during that period, uh, which is in many ways the origin of, of, of our whole world today. Science starts out with this debauch of credulity, and then they begin to kind of fast it down with hypotheses and so forth. And yes. more serious. And let's talk but a little great, bit. Great joy was that moment. Let's... And that's what this is a throwback to. And the joy of it. And we need a little bit more wonder. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, that moment where the, the wonder is, is, is also hinged with doubt and yeah. how that's leading to science when we come back, Ren. Because we're going to take a short break, uh, and then we'll come back and, and maybe start with that. Okay. Um, so you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor today on Living Writers. Lawrence Weschler, I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Lawrence Weschler. Um, Ren, uh, wait, what did you? What did you make of that music? It could have come right, right out of the museum. <laughs> that is the kind of thing that, that happens pretty regularly at the Museum uh, of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles. You were asking me at the, as we took the break about the problem of doubt, of slippage, let's say, of when you're looking at, through this museum. And, and, and the thing that's interesting is that David Wilson is precisely trying to crack the certainty with which you go through life. He is in some ways, uh, many of the people I've written about over the years are what I, what I call, think of Socratic characters who kind of take everything you take for granted and throw it up in the air. And, and that, kind of, that kind of moment that comes when Coyote runs over the cliff and keeps running and then suddenly looks down, there's nothing there. Mm. That, that, that is a wonderful moment for learning. In fact, it's in some ways the, the precondition to being able to to learn is suddenly to just stop thinking you know everything um, and to know that that in fact wondering whether and wondering at are two parts of the same thing whether whether it's true wondering at the marvels of nature and that that what is called for is a kind of openness to to the sheer overwhelming marvel that exists in the world and in fact gets kicked over by our by our sense of certainty and our sense of taking everything for granted. So that, in fact, David Wilson's museum is, is when you go there, I mean, it, it, it changes your life. I mean, it's, it's grown over the years since I wrote this. In fact, he got a MacArthur uh, some years after I wrote this book. Uh, oh, wonderful. And, and typically, I mean, this is typical David Wilson. David Wilson takes, who has no money at all. I mean, this is church mouse poor. There's no conceivable way this thing could be surviving, but somehow it does. Um, and he took the first $100,000 tranche of his of his MacArthur, and he commissioned a set of portraits, Velasquez-like portraits, of all the Soviet space dogs. <laughs> and they form a little alcove, the Borzoi alcove, that leads into the theater that he's built, which holds 14 seats. Wow, that's and, amazing. And, and there are incredibly great shows that happen there all the time. And, uh, and, and, how did he pick uh, the artists for the, and, to paint the space dogs? Yeah, well, absolutely. He commissioned those. They're very, very beautiful, very touching. And, and these, of course, famously were space dogs. The Soviet space dogs were all smuts that they found at the pound and turned into these dogs that went into outer space. And, he's, and he has these paintings of these dogs that as if they were the royalty of all time. And in some sense, they are. Yes, because they were shot off and they didn't come back. Yeah, no, I mean they're they're filled with poignancy. The story of the Soviet space dogs, but who would have thought to think about that? And um, the museum, parenthetically, uh, was this little storefront, and on either side of it were kind of abandoned buildings uh, or abandoned warehouse. And as he would, as the museum expanded, it kind of metastasized into the side buildings. So although the entry way is very narrow, in fact, when you get inside, part of the effect is very strange because it seems to get bigger and bigger and larger and larger. You go in every dimension. There's a, <laughs> there is now, for example, the, the great show of the micro-miniature sculptures of Hagop's Adalgit, which is uh, Hagop's Adalgit. And, and you walk in, and, and there's these little microscopes, and you look through the microscope, but you can't really tell whether what, what you're seeing is really there or you're looking at a video at the end of the microscope. But anyway, it looks like a microscope, and you look through, and you see, uh, for example, uh, Napoleon uh, in the inside of a needle, a 
sculpture of Napoleon, painted sculpture of Napoleon, <laughs> with his hand inside of his vest pocket, you know, inside of his belly, uh, and uh, and you know, it, it is carved out of a human hair, the way that Michelangelo would carve the David out of a block of marble. So you're looking at this and you say, David, is this? What is this? And he said, "Oh yes, this is an amazing man." And when he finally, and, and because there's all kinds of other images too. There's there's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs <laughs> next to Napoleon, arrayed on a human hair, <laughs> but really, really tiny dwarfs, you know. And they're all painted. And the thing that's really amazing thing about it is that they're painted. I mean, it's one thing to carve it, but can you imagine a drop of paint would have destroyed the whole thing? It has to be micro miniature emulsions of paint. So this can't possibly be true. And, and you and you and you and you say, "Can I pursue the guy?" He says, "Oh, it's really tragic. He died." The day we, two days before we opened the show, he died. <laughs> Tragic, and, and so but yet convenient. Crazy, but then at one point I actually looked up at the phone book. I called, and it turned out that I, I reached Sundalaj's daughter, and this was all true. So let's talk about the research for this book because yeah. when did you decide it was going to be a, the, your next project? Like when? Like at what moment was it that it wouldn't let you go? Well, I mean, or? in those days, I was doing this. You referred to this thing I call the Passions and Wonder series, and I have over the years gravitated toward these these stories. Well, I go back and forth, parenthetically, between political tragedies and cultural comedies. Uh, I cover uh, apartheid, South Africa, the Bosnian War. I cover uh, um, uh, tortured Latin America, things like that. And on the other hand, I do these stories that are people like like uh, David Wilson or uh, another piece I did years ago, uh, which is very pertinent right now, is about Boggs, the muddy artist who who draws muddy and spends his drawings, uh, which was a pretty wild. Which that book ended up doing for muddy what what Mr. Wilson does for museums. Uh, oh. But uh, but I would do these kinds of things, and 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 what united them all for me is precisely an interest in people or places that were kind of moseying along in the dailiness of their lives, and they suddenly catch fire, and they end up somewhere altogether different than when they started. Now, when you look at that in the political sphere, if you look at solidarity in Poland, or you look at um, the ANC in South Africa, or things like that, where there's these great movements to overthrow tyranny, that can be very enthralling. Parenthetically, Repression is all about trying to take that fire and damp it down, and, and and resistance is to resist that, and that's a fascinating story. But what it happens in the daily life of just Joe Schmo walking down the street, and they suddenly become incredibly, when they come alive, they come on fire. It's really great. It's just, it's a very very uh, exciting thing to, to uh, and it's also parenthetically very funny. Um, so anyway, I, I I began talking to David, and and and. It occurred to me at a point fairly early on that this could be an interesting thing to do, but it also presented a huge challenge as a piece of writing because I didn't want to demystify the place. This is not meant to be a guidebook where I'll tell you what's true and what's not true and so forth. Uh, the great challenge was to, to, do a, to do with narrative what that museum did with museums. I expect you, if you're reading the book, and you can tell me whether you had this experience, about halfway through, I expect you to be completely at sea. You have no idea what the hell is going on. <laughs> uh, is this real? Is this not real? And so forth. Um, and in fact, by the end, I hope you're doubting everything. Uh, and 
marveling at everything. And, and so is that how you decided to design the book as well, so well, that there's and, these and separate sections? There's lots of footnotes and footnotes in the back, and the footnotes are constantly undercutting the text itself. And, and, and by the end, you should be you should be fruitfully at sea. Um, one of the fav- favorite things that happened after that book was published, by the way, is that somebody uh, about six months after the book was published came to the museum and went went around for about two hours in the back, and they eventually came forward to the front desk, and he asked the guy at the front desk, are you either David Wilson or Lawrence Weschler? No. And David said that he was David Wilson, and then he leaned over quite you know, spiritually, and he said, come on, tell me the truth. Does that guy Lawrence Weschler really exist? <laughs> and indeed, when the book came out, there were many, many people whose reviews of the book I mean, literally three or four reviewers said, I didn't believe this was true, but I looked up the phone book, and it does exist, to which blew my mind. In other words, what 200 <laughs> pages of my writing doesn't convince you it exists, but you don't think I would have had the wit to put an entry in the phone book if I'd wanted to? That, exactly. That's enough for you to believe it's true. But they do. And, and uh, anyway, and, and, so and it was Wilson. indeed called a book of magic realist nonfiction, which was kind of the highest compliment it could have gotten. Yes, an amazing compliment. Maybe maybe David Wilson has a phone book in the museum now, too. So it is going strong, because you mentioned that there's, like, there what with the MacArthur uh, Genius Grant and and um, the, the Garden of Edens, and the and uh, so it's going strong. Well, it, it, if, you, if you were there 10 years ago, you need to go back. It's totally different. I mean, it's, it's completely... It's running all, all cylinders right now. It's got everything going on there. It's, there's, there's Ricky Jay's collection of decayed dice, Called Rotten Luck, <laughs> which is a, a display of decayed cellular nitrate uh, dice that rot. <laughs> so you've got that there. There's a there's a wonderful exhibit of uh, outsider logic. <laughs> there is a logician who is 80 years old, who has spent his entire life coming up with this incredibly complicated and interesting uh, logical system that's totally different from logic that. You, you learn at universities, and it has all kinds of, of, of models and so forth. And the exhibit is there. And, and when they uh, opened that show, there was a uh, the 80 year old man gave a talk in the 14th seat theater. And he it turned out he was clearly autistic or Asbergian or something. In any case, it was a two hour talk. He gave the entire talk aimed at one person sitting in the front row of the 14 seats. The entire talk, he was zoned in on that one person. He was talking to that person, that talking and talking, and that person was Werner Herzog. No, no. Is that cool or what? <laughs> and it wasn't a plant. Like, it wasn't. No, no, no. This is just no. stuff that happens naturally Werner was, there. Werner like, it was just... in heaven. <laughs> Holy cow. Well, see, yeah. How did you stop writing this book? Like, how did you know... I this because this material, like you said, you're at sea when you're reading it at certain points, and I can imagine when you're researching and everything is unfolding or leading to something else. And well, how did a you? Whole series of abysses. Abysses keep opening all over the place. And, uh, I don't know. Everything so how do you? Has to come to an end. Did, <laughs> you go on to the next thing. But 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 was it something like? Because you mentioned in the acknowledgments, like Harper's, like did did having deadlines or or, or making like drafts that that kind of appeared in different places beforehand? Because, I mean, the, the book, I mean, how because it, it obviously still hasn't let you go now. Yeah, like, I mean, well, I mean, I, 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 L.A. hasn't let me go. I go back whenever I go to L.A. In fact, it's very funny. When I stay in L.A., I stay in the most prestigious address in Los Angeles. I stay in the Getty trailer behind the Museum of Dress Technology, <laughs> which is true. Getty, the famous Getty, like the Getty Museum, 
had a side business of trailers in the 1940s. And so one of them was donated to the museum, and it's in this little, you know, uh, derelict parking lot behind the museum. And sometimes I stay there. And when, when people say, where you stay, I say, I'm staying at the Getty at the Jurassic. By the way, you know, when, when the Getty opened, which was a multi-billion dollar museum, the biggest museum opening in the history of America and so forth, about 15 years ago, whatever it was, um, the headline, the, the big review in the Washington Post style section, the headline was, Two L.A. Museums. And the first paragraph <laughs> was, there's this museum called the Getty that's just opened, and it just perfectly mentioned that. And then it said, but the really great museum in L.A. is the Museum of Jurassic Technology. That's that's wonderful. And that went on for like two pages about the museum of Jurassic Technology. And and David Wilson, he's he's unchanged and unfazed. But he still is completely uh, in, 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 encompassed by wonder. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And dedication. I mean, he is some kind of he, he he. I mean, without without getting bushy, he's he's a kind of holy person. I mean, he's really very he's a very profound person. Well, let's take, we're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. Um, You're listening to Living Writers Today, Lawrence Weschler. We're talking about his book, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder, Pronged Ants, Horned Humans, Mice on Toast, and Other Marvels of Jurassic Technology. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Lawrence Weschler, his book, Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder. Um, We should mention again that Lawrence Weschler will be coming to town, coming to Ann Arbor next week on Tuesday uh, to talk. uh, Are you going to, Ren, what will you be doing? Will you be reading a bit of the book, (laughs) talking? Uh, Apparently, what happened (laughs) is that the freshman class, the honors class of the freshmen, was assigned Mr. Wilson. Uh, over summer vacation, so uh, so I'm coming to talk to them about other people. But uh, but the public I, are I, welcome. Must be wild to be going to a university that was signed a book like this as their as your summer reading, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe it bodes well for them. Yes, yes, and 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 the public are welcome. And so you'll you'll be in town next Tuesday at the Power Center, 4:30 p.m. So um, come one, come all. I think because it's a big place. So um, I'm sure we can. Oh, please come. And then maybe you'll talk to one person in the front row, right? <laughs> um, so, so let's talk a little bit more about um, par- other parts of your life. When, when did you know you were a writer, uh, Ren? When did that actually hit you? Because, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I guess I, I always wrote. Um, 
I mean, I enjoyed writing in college and so forth. Um, and actually what happened was that I was about to uh, – I had gone to Santa Cruz and, and was about to – I had a four-year fellowship to the University of Toronto uh, in philosophy after after that. And I, I was about to go, and suddenly I realized that I just had this – this is 1974, so I just had this amazing education. Most of my professors were tenured, uh, were 45 years old, and, and – uh, and uh, the next generation of hires were going to be primarily women and people of color, which is something I approved of. But it suddenly didn't make sense to me going the academic route, and I just decided I'd try to stay academic, intellectually alive outside of academia. And and um, and so I didn't go to didn't have any follow up degrees, and I just began uh, doing what I enjoyed doing, which is writing. And and for the longest time, I mean, for three or four years, I was writing primarily for freebies, you know, those uh, local free newspapers that get yes. thrown at, in bales at liquor stores, you know, that kind of, uh, for both the LA Weekly and the LA Reader. It's funny, by the way, about my writing for the LA Reader. Um, the LA Reader, which was a offshoot of the Chicago Reader, was just getting started that time, but I, I, I had lots of cover stories there. And some of those cover stories, uh, some of those issues are incredibly valuable today uh, because the staff of that newspaper consisted of three people, a publisher, an editor, and the circulation manager. The circulation manager being the person who uh, who had his Toyota pickup and would throw the bales of, of right. the reader at, at the liquor stores. And they couldn't really pay him, and so they allowed him to start a little, to, to publish a little uh, comic strip in this, uh, in this uh, L.A. reader. And the guy could not draw at all. He absolutely could not draw, but it was a great, great strip. But all he could draw was one-eared monkey, uh, one-eared rabbits, and that was Matt Groening. Yes. Well, that goes on to be the, the the that was the origin of the Life in Hell series and the origin of the Simpsons and everything else. And and nowadays there are issues with my cover stories, which when you go into the magazine, the back side of the cover story has very early issues of, of Matt Grady's cartoons, and so they're very valuable. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that rabbit and life and hell, that's yeah. meant a lot to me. It diff- yeah. That's L.A. Dream- too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess I love L.A. too then. That, yep. that's, a, that's amazing. So so now you're also doing, uh, you're working with McSweeney's. And, uh, I mean, um, I've been doing that. I've been uh, a contributor to McSweeney's since, I guess, issue three. Uh, Tell us about the Convergence Contest, you know, if you don't what mind. What happened is I, I started with issue three or issue four. There was this thing I'd always wanted to do, uh, and I couldn't find any magazine that would do it. And the New Yorker wouldn't do it, and Harper's, and so forth, which was to take two things, uh, take two images that you look at side by side, and you wouldn't ordinarily think of them together, but then to write an essay about how they, in fact, do converge on each other. Um, 